It's a pleasure for my family and me to be back with you, to be here with our church family tonight. We do appreciate your support and encouragement as we were able to be at the Hurricane Congregation this morning for their homecoming. It was, it seems, a very festive and very lovely occasion in which so many from perhaps years gone by were able to enjoy a time of renewed acquaintance, of course, and a powerful service of worship and song and prayer today. Also, I'd like to express appreciation to those who were able to be present at the Carthage Congregation Friday evening. I also had a very exciting VBS on that occasion and very thankful, certainly for your prayers, as also those in attendance as well for us during the course of that gospel event. Although it's certainly a little bit ahead of yet when the reality shall take place, there are some additional VBSs going on in the area, and I've been invited to speak at a few of them, but coming up next week, now not this week, but next week, on the 13th of June, which is a week from tomorrow, I'll be at the Doyle congregation, my family and me, for uh, the first night of their VBS on that occasion. That's again the Doyle Church of Christ in White County. The very next night, I'll be over here at Shiloh, so we'll perhaps have opportunity to mention them again. If you have a, a, availability to come, keep those things in mind. Pray for those efforts that certainly they may, in fact, set forth the gospel so that not only young, but young at heart can come to know better those matters and come to obey that which God would have them do. We are happy, though, to be back this evening at Pippin. And as you might well have guessed, based on the reading of a few moments ago, We'll begin a series of lessons this evening that shall last for quite some time. After all, our Bible bowlers, our youngsters, as they make plans and already preparation underway for that Bible bowl event the 10th of September, it has typically been their approach to preach through the book that they're studying, and I'll attempt to do that again from now on until the early part of the month of September. And that, of course, is the book of Revelation. As we preach through that book, well, of course, we have some 13 weeks to cover 22 chapters. And so I'll try to gauge the amount we cover each Sunday evening in a way that it'll average out a, a little bit less than two chapters on an occurrence. I hope that as you read along with us and perhaps work those puzzles that will be made available, that we each will have an increased understanding and an enhanced feeling of, of appreciation for that last book in the Bible. It is with that in mind tonight that we come to this opening matter of some introductory comments. As you take a look at them, you might appreciate certainly some of what I have already noted. But there is one additional thought that perhaps served as one of the reasons as to why this book has not been selected before by the Bible Bowl Committee. And that is to say, the book of Revelation is a unique New Testament book. It stands alone as the only New Testament book of prophecy. As such, it has often found itself in shambles in the hands of commentators and in the hands of others through the centuries. In fact, as great a scholar as Martin Luther was, even he struggled mightily with the book of Revelation to the point where at times he even admittedly threw up his hands in disgust at it. It is, of course, sufficient to know Revelation has some very interesting things in it. As we'll discuss in a moment, it has been the ground of a great many misunderstandings and a great many far-fetched teachings that still are prevalent today. I feel sure that those who write the questions won't wander off onto pathways like that, but rather it will surround the basic factual matters contained in the book. But as you and I over the next few weeks look into its teachings, we shall often find ourselves in place to discuss and to wrestle with some of the great matters found in the apocalypse. For that reason, I thought tonight we might 
divide the lesson into two parts. Not only shall we consider chapter 1, but we will also look at a few brief facts about the book of Revelation. Facts which not only will be helpful to our youngsters, but facts that will also be helpful to all of us as we encourage them, and facts that can be very beneficial to us in our personal knowledge of the book of Revelation. First and foremost, we might begin this way. The book of Revelation is the singular greatest New Testament book of victory. In fact, it is significant that it comes last. It is the 27th and last New Testament book. As such, it is built on the superstructure of the 26 books that precede it. And in this book, we have the Christ per setting forth the powerful and marvelous message of victory for the faithful, for those who are saints. In addition to that message of victory, we might do well to keep in mind the key word found in that book. Sixteen times, at least in the Greek text, we encounter the word which is translated overcome. And there, in fact, is the singular message. If you will overcome Satan, self, and sin, you can come over and live with me in heaven. And that's what the Lord told those persecuted, beleaguered saints of the first century. And that's the singular message that you and I encounter time and again in this book of some 22 chapters. Marvelous indeed is it that the second lesson is this, that the style and the language and the literature of the book of Revelation also is unique in the New Testament, at least in terms of the totality of its book. The message you see is apocalyptic. In fact, the very first word in the Greek text for the book of Revelation is the word apocalypsis, that which is translated apocalypse. If you and I were able to read Greek, that would be the Revelation 1 verse 1's opening word, apocalypse. Now one might ask, what does that long and somewhat strange sounding word mean? That word simply means the revealing, the unveiling, or the disclosing. In other words, the Christ is revealing something. That which previously had been hidden, that which previously had been concealed, He's now revealing, and hence it's the apocalypse. Amazing, isn't it, that that word, which is the centerpiece of the way the book begins, is also a careful figure about the style of the language. You and I are often so comfortable reading stories, that is to say narratives which are in chronological order. And many of the Old Testament books are that way, like 1 Kings and even Genesis. But Revelation is not that kind of literature. Revelation is figurative language. It is, in fact, set forth in the opening verse of the book. The Lord, in fact, on that occasion said that it was signified, S-I-G-N-I-F-I-E-D. And you might note with me that that word signified means that the literature presented is done so with principles of truth in the form of signs and symbols. In other words, though you and I may encounter in this book references to a bottomless pit or references to, let's say, death that's riding on a horse, when you and I encounter them, we understand that literally death isn't riding on a horse, but yet that's a symbol for some underlying basic truth. No wonder we shall often have to wrestle with what is the truth behind the symbol. And so it is that time and again we will revisit the fact that this is figurative language and that that figure has a truth that is supporting it. 
and that of, of which it is representative. In addition to all of that, you might notice that Revelation frequently makes reference and allusion to the Old Testament. In fact, even though the Revelation only consists of 22 chapters, there are at least 500 allusions and references to the Old Testament. That's a large number, isn't it? Although Matthew, for instance, often quotes the Old Testament anywhere close to 500 times. For that reason, it does us well frequently to allow the Old Testament to cast a spotlight on and help us rightly interpret and to correctly divide the book of Revelation. And oddly enough, those portions of the Old Testament that are quite often referenced are the parts that you and I may find more difficult going, like the book of Zechariah and the book of Ezekiel and the last six chapters of the book of Daniel. All of them are frequently referenced in the Revelation. As you might well anticipate, they help us greatly to understand and to apply some of the things found in the Revelation. Another point, though, that's vital as we come to appreciate the book of Revelation is this one. Its background was exceedingly intriguing. It was written especially to Christians who themselves were suffering beneath the tremendous persecution of a government that was not favorable toward them. Not only was the Jewish institution against them, but here the actual Roman government so strongly and heavily persecuted them. As we look at the letters to the seven churches beginning next Lord's Day evening, we shall remember that to that church, for instance, at Pergamos, they was, that is where Satan's seat was. They were in the midst of persecution and terrible persecution at that. That would help us as we remember this was written to people who in fact the next morning may die because they were Christians for no other reason than that. And this message was a message of hope and encouragement, a message that bolstered and buoyed their faith so that they wouldn't lose hope and so that they wouldn't lose the character of that to which they had already placed their devotion, namely to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to be noted concerning that, that many texts of the Bible had pointed us in this direction. Jesus and His Beatitudes had reminded us, hadn't He, in the last two of them, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 9. And then the next one. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, the Lord said, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. As that kind of statement was uttered by the Savior, wasn't it Paul who also joined in that chorus? In Romans 8, 18, when he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul to Timothy wrote, All who shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. John wrote in 1 John three thirteen, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. In all of those instances, and many others might be listed, the first century Christians, and that matter only heightened after the fall of Jerusalem and even in the reign of several of those Roman emperors, might we quickly say that this was going to be an issue that raised its head time and again in the days of the Roman Empire. 
Several of those emperors were antagonistic to Christianity, and not only so, but they openly declared that such were to be persecuted. And thus, that openly allowed anybody in Rome, and even in the Roman Empire, to bring the names of Christians to the authorities who in turn would go and arrest them. Not because they had committed a crime, not because they had been enemies of the state, but rather because they simply were devoted to Jesus. And for that reason, they were put into prison. And for that reason, many of them lost their lives. It was to them that the book of Revelation was particularly written, and it was to them that it carried an especial message. The fifth lesson that we might quickly note, and it's sad to notice, but still many throughout the years have at least made the claim that Revelation cannot be understood by mankind. These signs, these symbols, these lessons, these truths are simply above the kin of the capability of the mind of man. If one approaches the book with that thought, it's no wonder that one will never understand it. That's the same way with chemistry or physics or anything else. If a student enters the class fully convinced he can never learn it, then he ain't going to learn much, if anything at all. Excuse me. And so it is with the Revelation. We can certainly appreciate the fact it is a part of God's revealed will. And because of that, it can be understood. God gave us a message. And in it is this wonderful message of victory. And you and I can, in fact, take much from it. Understandable and applicable to our daily walk of life. In the sixth and final opening part of our lesson tonight you might notice one final thing that can be often useful to us. And that is to say, to put ourselves into the place of those who first received the book. In other words, there were some initial individuals to whom and of whom the book was originally sent. How did they receive it? When that person who was a Christian in prison, perhaps going to die within the next few days, when he heard someone read this book, how did he hear it? What lessons did he take from it? How did it assist him in his Christianity? I might submit that if we can approach the book hearing it the way they would have heard it and listening to the lessons that were, have been so clear to them, it might be very clear also to us and will serve greatly as we strive to walk close to the Master day by day. With those six opening comments made, let's turn our attention to chapter 1, which is all that we shall cover tonight in the basic text of the book. Chapter 1 has but 20 verses, but it does set the stage for all 21 chapters that are to follow. It identifies the speaker. It identifies, in fact, the basic reason as to why he is able to occupy that role of the revelator, of the spokesman, if you will. And thus, as we come to this, the opening chapter might be divided like this. The first three verses serve as an introduction to, in fact, not only that chapter, but to the whole book. Verses 4 through 8 consist of the salutation to this book. And then in verses 9 through 20 is John's vision of the revelator. That is the one whose revelation it is. With that brief division or outline in mind to this chapter, let us look interestingly at just a few of the lessons of the first three verses. It is in the case in them we quickly learn the order of this revelation. The Father revealed to the Son, who in turn revealed it, as you'll see, to the angel, 
who in turn shared it with John, who in turn delivered it to the Christians. That five-fold sequence is, in fact, highlighting of this fact. The opening phrase is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is His revelation. It thus is not the character of any man to superimpose on this what he thinks it means. It's Christ's revelation. It isn't mine and it isn't yours. It is His. No wonder we should allow Him to explain as much as possible what it means. For that reason, the next thought is then a powerful one. You can easily appreciate with me that immediately it's noted that this consists of things which must shortly take place. Things in the King James rendering that must shortly come to pass. I would ask that tells us something immediately. It tells us that the things revealed in this book were soon to begin in their fulfillment. It's not that they were going to start their fulfillment 2,000 years later or 4,000 years later, but the beginning of the fulfillment was to begin shortly. In addition to that fact, you'll notice with me that verse 2 tells us the message is clearly and undeniably the Word of God. In fact, the next phrase is it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. When we thus come to this book, just as surely as all the others, it's the Word of God. It proclaims itself as such. It thus is not the hallucinations of a delusional person. It's not the characterizations of some ancient person who dreamed up these beasts and vials and bowls and other things we're about to encounter in this book. This is literally what God to His Son revealed to John. You can also note beyond that the great blessing pronounced upon several classes of individuals in verse 3. First, to the one who reads it. Secondly, to those who hear it. Lastly, to those who keep it. That means that there are things to be obeyed in this book. We're familiar with commandments as they occur in Romans or 1 Corinthians or even Mark. But there are commands in the Revelation that are to be obeyed. Certainly we must be aware of them so that on that day of judgment we aren't found lacking relative to what He reminded us and commanded of us in the Revelation. Beyond verse number 3, that brings us then to the salutation section, verses 4 through 8. We immediately encounter a number of things. Again, who the spokesman was and who was being addressed. In literature or in English classes, we're often told that that's an important thing to identify. When you're studying poetry, who wrote it and to whom was it written? And what were the circumstances of those to whom it was written? The same similar kinds of questions can be helpful to us here. We notice in verse number 4, the first word is the word John. John was the apostle who wrote this book. He wrote five of the books of the New Testament, the book of John, the book of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and also the Revelation. He was that apostle of love. He was that individual who, of course, was the brother of James and the son of Zebedee. And this individual was often very near the Savior, able to witness some very close things. It was Peter, James, and John that ascended the Mount of Transfiguration and watched the Lord being transfigured. It was Peter, James, and John that were invited in with him when he raised the daughter of Jairus. It was Peter, James, and John that were drawn closer to the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. 
John was often near the Savior and blessed to witness some very special events. It was to that same person that the revelation was revealed. As you can see also, not only is John to be noted, but you'll notice quickly it says, John 2, the seven churches which are in Asia. And hence, this was originally directed to seven congregations of the Lord's people in the country of Asia Minor in the ancient Roman Empire. It was to those seven churches that these special messages were revealed. And it was to them that the Lord had some very stern things to say. As we look at them, especially over the next two weeks, next week and the week following, we shall be reminded powerfully of how the lessons in those are certainly meaningful for us still today. For this point, we'll have more to say about those seven churches when we arrive at verse 11 in just a moment. But for now, the next thought to appreciate is simply this one. The ultimate author is highlighted in verse 4 in the following way. Peace from Him which is, and which was, and which is to come. Now that, of course, identifies one who is beyond the bounds of time. He has been, He currently is, and He is yet to be. That's God. He is the eternal one highlighted and lifted so wonderfully throughout all the pages of the Bible. And He's already described in some interesting ways in verse 4. Notice the seven spirits before His throne. Though much later will be said about the number seven, it's already clear it's going to occupy a very special role because the Holy Spirit is spoken of in terms of seven spirits. And that word seven will highlight the thought of entirety and completeness and fullness with regard to the object under discussion. And here we notice seven spirits identify the full and complete operation of all that the Holy Spirit was intended by God to accomplish. It is to be noted then in verse 5, Jesus Christ. And many names and descriptive ones at that are given to Him and are stated of Him. Would you notice them quickly with me? He's called the faithful witness. He's called the firstborn from the dead. He's called the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is furthermore identified as the one who has made us, you and me, kings and priests. And as if all that isn't enough, He's the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in His blood. It is He who's the principal originator. It is His revelation. Among all those things, isn't that a challenging realization? And would that not have been beneficial to those beleaguered, persecuted Christians? Though the Roman government is against me, and though the local authorities are against me, I serve a master who's greater than all of them. He reigns over the kings of this earth. There are times today it's tempting to think the president's powerful. And there's no question that he is. And it's tempting to think that the League of Nations or other particular governmental bodies are powerful. But according to this passage, there's one that reigns over all of them. And he stands in absolute power and majesty and control over all of them. And it's none other than Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead. It is true, isn't it, that as great as He is, He loved us sufficiently, that He did what was necessary to wash us from our sins in His blood. No wonder then that these saints would immediately have been willing to listen to Him. Doesn't the logic make sense? If He died for me 
If He shed His blood at Calvary for me, then if it cost me my life to serve Him, is it not worth it? That's the kind of thinking that they would have heard in this book. Christ died for me, and now if the Roman government puts me to death for my service to Him, is any less than my devotion required in order to be faithful to Him? Many of them, no doubt, may have thought those very things as they marched out to their death at dawn the next morning. It is amazing as we give thought to all of that that the chapter is just getting warmed up. For Jesus is about to say much more about Himself. After all, in verse 7, He, com he is coming with clouds. Just as surely as He came once and humankind put Him to death, He's coming back. And He's coming back with clouds and He's coming back triumphantly. And every eye will see Him. Even those soldiers that pierced Him. That today is still a tremendous message of comfort to us, isn't it? He's coming back. You and I have noted that there are those like Carol Camping just a few days ago who had the audacity to predict He was coming back, and obviously He was wrong, and all those who are in of His kind shall be, because in Mark 13, 32, no man knows the day of His coming. But yet this Scripture assures us that He is coming back. No wonder we're admonished to always be prepared and be ready because we don't know neither the day or the hour when that shall be. You'll notice, though, that He is coming back. Every eye shall see Him. And furthermore, all the nations of the earth, there will be those in those nations that mourn and wail because of His coming, because they won't be ready. Of course, those who are ready won't mourn. They'll be excited. In fact, all their hopes and dreams will have come reality because heaven is now very much shortly in the future. As you can see in verses 7 and following, we have more things about this. Christ describes Himself as the Alpha and the Omega. Now to you and me, we might say He's the A and the Z and everything in between. The first and last of the Greek letters respectively were Alpha and Omega. Jesus said, I'm the beginning, I'm the end, and I'm everything in between. I am all that there is to provide meaning to life, and I'm all that there is to provide the sustenance and the maintenance of faithful living. These Christians needed to hear that, and so too do you and me. So often you and I are tempted to be sidetracked and follow other devices of the human family, but there is no other foundation than the Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11. And you can see Jesus here pinpoints that thought identically. He's quick then to lead us into a realization of some thoughts concerning John. John himself, you see, was currently banished, exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos was a small island situated about 30 miles off the southwestern coast of Asia Minor. In fact, the nearest major city was Ephesus. And John, in fact, had spent many previous years laboring for the gospel in Ephesus. And when the king, the emperor I should say, turned against Christianity, John was banished, placed on this island of Patmos. In fact, no wonder John himself was being persecuted at the time of this vision. He could identify with those Christians who, in fact, were having to give their lives because John himself here located on Patmos, was also under severe persecution. 
as you and I give thought to that degree of persecution, we then come to verses 9 through 20. The vision that John saw. On the Lord's day, John says, I had a vision. The Lord's day reminds us it was Sunday, the first day of the week. And in as much as John had this vision, it says behind him he heard a great voice, a loud voice. And you'll notice that this voice gave him a command. John, what you see, you write in a book. That immediately reminds us that this was not merely something that was told to him. John was in fact seated in an audience and there were some things over the next 21 chapters he was going to see. It was a visual revelation. What you see, John, write in a book, not what you've heard or what you've been told. It's as if John was sitting in the audience and there was a play taking place on stage. Jesus was the director of the play, and what was happening involved dragons and beasts and images. And what John saw, he wrote in the book. And thus, when you and I read the book of Revelation, we can read what he saw, and it's as though we can also be in the audience and visualize it and witness it and appreciate the very same things which he saw. That will be a benefit to us as we consider the Revelation. And you can quickly note with me that John, as he witnessed and saw these things, he immediately saw seven lampstands. Seven lampstands. The King James Version calls it candlesticks. At this point, what were the candlesticks? Verse 20 tells us that those candlesticks were in fact the seven churches. Thus, seven candlesticks, this was directly addressed to those seven churches. But might we pause to notice, as we said a minute ago, what were they? I've included a map that can be of some benefit to us. We'll return to this slide in just a moment. Here is a map of that portion of the world of which we're speaking in the book of Revelation. I know that the writing itself is probably too small for you to read at this point, but if you'll notice some of the things that might be stated about those cities, I'm going to blow that up in just a moment so that you can see a little bit easier where those seven churches were. But this is the entirety of that portion of the world. And the city of Rome, of course, was the capital of the Roman Empire. And Rome was over here rather to, in fact, off the screen to to your left. With at least a look at that, let's blow up that portion that's Asia Minor and look at these seven churches in Asia. And here they are. It would be beneficial if we would remember them in order because the message of the next two chapters will be addressed in order. And if we remember that fact, it will allow us to directly remember which message was directed to which church. If you'll follow them with me, Ephesus is the first one addressed. And once you appreciate that, move your way upward and then back downward to the right. And that will be the address to them in order. And they are thus, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Again, that's sweeping from the bottom left hand upward and then downward to the right. Those are the seven churches that were specifically addressed and represented by those seven golden lampstands. As you give thought to them, there were some unique features of each one of these cities, and we shall need to address them in due course. 
But for now, let's revisit that previous slide. And notice at the bottom that not only did John see those seven golden lampstands, but there was one standing in the midst of the golden lampstands. What was that one? It was not another golden lampstand. It was one like unto the Son of Man. And immediately we remember that Jesus referred to Himself as the Son of Man in Matthew 16, 13. And in Matthew 12, verse 40, also there is that descriptive of He as the Son of Man. There thus can be no question that that one standing in the midst of the golden lampstands was none other than a representation of Jesus the Christ. If that wasn't clear enough already, he then says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Same thing he had just said earlier in the chapter, reminding us this is who John is now able to listen to as he sees his revelation. You'll notice finally that as he sees the Master in the midst of those lampstands, Jesus is clothed in a particular way. He wears a garment that stretches all the way to His feet, to the, to the ground, if you please. That immediately reminds us of His majesty. For today, you and I even realize that when a judge sits on his placement on the bench, he wears a robe that extends, and that robe is a symbol or an element of his position, his authority, his jurisdiction, if you will. The fact that the Lord wore that garment that stretched to that extent was a reminder that He too was all-glorious and that His rule and reign was absolute and that He occupied this position of greatness and He was deserving of it. But that isn't all that John saw concerning the Master. His head and His hairs were white, symbolizing His purity and symbolizing His wisdom symbolizing the absolute authenticity of that which he was to reveal in the chapters to follow. Beyond the whiteness of that, his eyes, it says, they were like a flame of fire. Thus they were penetrating in their character. You couldn't hide from him. And we would each do well to remember that thought today. For isn't it true from Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Thus, those penetrating eyes didn't allow the people to hide anything from Him then. And they certainly do not allow us to hide anything from Him now. His feet were like fine brass, polished and smooth. That immediately is an Old Testament reference, taking us back to the third chapter of Daniel. When on that occasion it was Daniel's friends who found themselves cast into a fiery furnace. But as you and I well remember that when the king looked into that, he saw not those three he had cast in there, but they plus another, one like unto the Son of Man. Jesus the Christ, you see, was in that fiery furnace with them, and He's the one that protected them, just like He did Daniel three chapters later when He closed the mouths of the lions. Here was a pre-incarnate representation and appearance of the Christ in Daniel the third chapter. And his fine or his finely polished brass feet in this image reminds us that just like he predicted those in that day, he'll protect you today. Wouldn't that have been a lovely message of encouragement to those saints who were persecuted in the days of Rome? You'll notice his voice was described as loud, like the voice of many waters. You and I can think of that as a way of representing the powerful 
way in which His message is so needful. You and I know that when a loud voice or when a loud sound occurs, we immediately react and turn to hear what it was that took place. And here, as John was able to hear the largeness and loudness of that sound, it reminds us that what's about to be said is very, very important. Finally, we'll notice that he saw something in the right hand of this Son of Man. Seven stars. Seven stars. We immediately wonder, what do they represent? Thankfully, verse 20 tells us, those seven stars were the angels of the seven churches. Thus, they were the messengers that ultimately and finally carried and delivered those messages to the seven churches. And as much then as the lampstands represented the churches and these stars represented the angels or messengers to those churches, those would be very good Bible bowl questions and important things for all of us to remember as we see the book unfold before us. We also notice that the Lord's countenance was exceedingly bright, verses 16 and 17. The brightness, in fact, is stated that it was likened unto the sun, shining in its strength. You and I know well, we, it is not wise, of course, to look directly at the bright and shining sun. The energy content of the light rays are powerful enough to damage the retinas of our eyes. Here, John recognized that the Lord's countenance was bright as the sun in its shining character. That takes us back to the Mount of Transfiguration, doesn't it? When Jesus there was transfigured along with Elijah and Moses, and there He was likened in His appearance under the sun. There's no question, too many allusions to the Christ and too many features that take us back to events in His life. In light of all this that, that John saw, Next, we're told what John did. He fell over as dead. John was overwhelmed with this. Seeing this Christ, seeing all these things and the character of His being, John fell over as a dead man. However, the Lord reached out His right hand and touched John and said, Don't be afraid. The Lord had some comforting words of peacefulness and some comforting words of solace for him. And as such... He went on to say, again, don't be afraid. You'll note with me, particularly verse number 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Thus to John, here the Lord said, I have been in the place of these who were saints. I was alive, but then they killed me. I was dead, but now I'm alive again. And that gave them hope, and it does all of us, that death is not the end. A funeral can be a sad occasion, certainly for anyone who's not a member of the church. But may we never forget that as Christians, that is only a transition to a better place than this one. Jesus said, I was alive and then dead, but now I'm alive again. And furthermore, He concluded verse 18 with a powerful statement, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys to those things, meaning that He can unlock them at the appropriate time, cease them at the appropriate time, and of course, usher in the fullness of eternity. That's what it means to have the keys, and the Lord has them. The last two verses of the chapter. One final command to John. John, verse 19, Write the things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are yet to come. 
we then learn in the Revelation that it will tell us some things that had already taken place. It also tells us some things that were in the process of occurring then. And finally, it tells us some things that at that time had not even yet begun to occur. We shall encounter them all in the book of Revelation. And with that, the curtain closes on Revelation chapter 1. As we draw this lesson to its conclusion, it is the grand finale of the Bible, the 66th and final book, and in that sense it's built upon all 65 which precede it. It is to be noted that we've learned six quick facts about the book that would do us well to keep in mind. And then we've also studied chapter 1, somewhat hastily to be sure. But nonetheless, we've identified the revelator, the one who will be doing the speaking and the one whose revelation it is. And as we look in the chapters that follow, we'll listen to what he has to say to peoples of that day and, of course, to you and me today. But suffice it to say that one of the things he will urge them is utter and complete faithfulness. To Ephesus, he'd say, you've left your first love. To Thyatira, he would say, you've tolerated false doctrine. To Sardis, he'd say, you're a dead church even though you claim you're not. All of those perhaps ask us the question tonight, and it's a haunting question. Where do you and I stand before God? Is there a name that, I'm claim, that I claim to live but I'm dead? Is there in fact a situation which I've tolerated falsehood in my life? Is it the case that I have left my first love? If tonight that might be descriptive of you, why not come back to your first love tonight? Why not let the words of the Revelator challenge you to greater faithfulness and to a greater livelihood in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? <laughs> Brother Harold has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance to you to help you rededicate your life as God would forgive you of sins, in fact, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you if you have be not ever become a Christian. There will never be a better tonight than this one, for indeed today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If tonight we could be of help to you in either of these ways, why not let that be known if you would? While together we stand and while we sing.